In the following live session recording, Steve Parr, Vice President for Staff Coordination, Georgia Baptist Mission Board, leads the session entitled Reaching Students Amidst Generational and Cultural Change. Did you know that Generation Z now makes up about one-fourth of the U.S. population? They are not millennials, but how are they different? What are they experiencing, and how can you reach them? For the answers, let's join Steve now. Anyway, my oldest daughter was out of church, uh, understanding that more students are walking away than staying all of a sudden, and uh, you know what's going on here. So I partnered with a, a friend of mine who's a research specialist. I enjoy research as a hobby, but he's uh, you know got degrees and stuff. And we did a national study of young adults who grew up going to church. And a lot's being written about why we're losing young adults, but what we studied is not why we're losing them, but those who grew up in church and are still there, we asked what kept them there. And from that came a project called Why They Stay. Maybe some of you have heard about it. I hope you have. If not, uh, I'm the author of that book, Why They Stay, which is right there. And uh, I will tell you the end of the story, too, of my daughter. Remember my daughter I told you was out of church? This Sunday, she'll be teaching preschool. Uh, she's... Uh, She'll be, she goes to the church business meetings. I mean, she's all in. So we've, uh, we've been able in these three years since I've done this to, to reclaim her back into a full devoted service into the church. And this was a part of that process with me interviewing her and her being honest with me. And it, it was really neat the way God worked. And as I've been speaking about this, not just in Georgia, but literally, you know, all over the U.S., uh, the most common question I get is, Steve, I've got an adult child who's out of church. How do I get them back? So we've now endeavored to do another national research project of young adults who, not young adults, yeah, young adults who grew up going to church, but who left for at least two years, or were gone at least two years, and made it back. And uh, instead of why they stay, it's when they stray, what do you do? And that research is about to be released. I haven't even been speaking on it yet. I've got the information in my mind. We've done the research. I'm very excited about it, so you can be watching for that. So I do want to encourage you to go. Uh, I've got a site called stevepar.net, and you can learn more about things like that. Uh, but anyway... I didn't come to sell things, but if you want to know more about why they, why they stay, I do have books available. You go to Amazon, so forth. SteveParr.net, you can get free downloadable uh, videos uh, where I'm speaking to parents. There's a eight 30-minute sessions. The reason they're 30 minutes is so you can have a 30 minutes for discussion if it's in a Bible study group, and it doesn't cost you a dime. So I want to invite you to go and tap into that. So that's why they stay. So that's what I've become in recent years uh, kind of known for in terms of a, a signature item. So then a few years ago, our executive director asked me to help our Georgia churches with next generation issues. And so we've been focused there for the last few years. Now we've got a new executive director. I know we're restructuring, but we'll never stop trying to do a good job of reaching out to the next generation. So I'm here today to talk about that and to uh, uh, helpful, helpfully, how many of you guys are, are student pastors? You're a vocational student pastor, raise your hand just so I can kind of see what we got here. How many of you work with children? Raise your hand, children's leaders, okay? How many of you are uh, pastors or other staff members in your church? How about uh, you're a volunteer student worker in your church or a children's worker? Okay, so about half volunteers and half staff, that's a good blend. So what we're gonna look at uh, are some of the characteristics of this generation because they are different. And do not confuse our children today with millennials. They are not millennials, it's a whole new generation. Now, some of you know this perhaps, some of you will be new, uh, uh, new material for you. Some will reinforce, but as we go through here and learn about this next generation and how they differ from their parents, and much less from me as a baby boomer, and begin to ask, how do we need to adapt what we're doing as a Sunday school teacher 
or as a student pastor or children's director, what do we need to do differently in order to reach them? Now, uh, so let's, let's just kind of make our way through this. First of all, in terms of to demonstrate where we're at, that first picture on your right demonstrates my childhood. And I went from my childhood into my adult life, and I crossed that river of faith, and it, it pushed against me. It was knee-deep. And it didn't push against me, but I had no trouble getting across. Some of my friends slipped and didn't make it. But more, more than not of my generation made it across this river. Now, today, as I talk about younger adults and say things about this culture, because many of you are young adults, I want you to hear me very clearly. I'm not blaming you at all. Uh, you're not responsible for the culture. You've just grown up in it. So if I say anything that sounds negative about the culture, I'm not saying you caused it. I'm just saying the, the journey that I had growing up, it's like this now. It's not like that anymore. And so you didn't cause this. You just got to get through this when you're a teenager or a young adult. And, and this is not knee deep. This is neck deep. And so the cultural forces are pushing more strongly against children and teens and young adults than it was for me as a baby boomer growing up. And I recognize and I acknowledge that. Also, as a former student pastor, I acknowledge, as a children's director, your task is more difficult than mine was when I was doing hands-on student ministry uh, 20 and 25 and 30 years ago. So, uh, but uh, we'll, we'll get into that. It's not all negative. I'll tell you, I'm an optimist. I'm a positive person. That's why instead of saying why they stray, we did why they stay. We're looking, instead of what, why we're losing, what keeps young adults connected to our church. So anyway, uh, just wanted you to see that as a demonstration or an illustration and how, how challenging it is. Now, I, I do want to say this, however. Uh, now, how, how do you go back on this, Quillen? Do you know I, I went, went too fast? Okay. That'll do it. There we go. That'll work. Okay. Now, how many of you are under the age of 30? Raise your hand. You under 30 folks. Okay. Yeah, under 30. Okay. There you go. I just described to you the river you crossed, which was different than the river I crossed. And I want to acknowledge the cultural and spiritual forces pushing against you much harder than pushing against me when I was growing up. And so it's not easy. I would not dare want to be a teenager today in today's world. I'm glad there was no internet when I was a kid. <laughs> I'm glad I never owned a computer. I'm glad there were no video games. We had Pong was the first game we played, I'm telling you, you know, and uh, just how primitive it seems now. And I'm so glad. So, so it was tough for you, but for those of you who are under age 30, when you look at me, someone double your age, okay, who's on the hills of senior adult life, don't think we had it easy. We just had it hard in a different way, okay? Here's how we had it hard. Did you know our parents tried to kill us? Did you know that when we were growing up? Did y'all know that? <laughs> Seriously, when I was growing up, we never wore seatbelts. Did you know that? Never thought about it. Never occurred to us to wear a seatbelt. We'd get in a car. Well, it did not, exactly. Never occurred to us. We'd get in a car. When I was a child, and we would go from North Georgia to Orlando, and I'd be all over the car. I'd be laying in the back window and uh, in the back seat. And that's just the life. And when I was a baby, I, my parents never had a car seat for me as a baby. Do you know where I was when I was a baby, when I was in the car? Anybody know where I was? I was in my mama's lap in the front seat going 75 with her not wearing a seatbelt, with her smoking a cigarette with the windows up. That's where I was because they were trying to kill me. See, it was a whole different world when I was coming up. 
And, and you see the helmet. We never wore helmets. You, you wore a helmet if it's a contact sport like football. My dad bought me a motorcycle and did not buy me a helmet. Now, you put two and two together here. Okay, some of you think, if you're a little older, or you think back, who was my hero when I was a child? You start thinking about helmets. Evil Knievel, who was jumping, you know, Caesar's Palace, get all his bones broke, you know, he's jumping out of these cars and stuff, or these long jumps. So I'm, I'm a teenager, I've got a motorcycle, I'm building ramps and jumping things and never even occurred to me to put a helmet on. Because my parents tried to kill me. Today, what the parents say, now don't leave the yard. Don't leave the yard. You know what my daddy said? Now, don't you leave the county, son. You stay within 25 miles. Don't you get, you know, you be back by Thursday, you know. I, I, I'd head out in the morning, and they, they wouldn't see me and not even know where I was. They'd know where to contact me. I'd be gone to 9 or 10 at night. They didn't think anything about it. If my child's gone for an hour, I'm, in a, I'm calling the police. I'm in a panic. It's just a different, it's a different day, isn't it? So we had it harder in some other ways. Uh, today, they tell you to eat healthy. I grew up... Uh, you know, eating candy cigarettes and big league chew bubble gums when I grew up, you know, so it's such a different day. I can go on and on and on about what well, was different the way parents tried to kill us back in the day. But anyway, uh, but it, it was really easier spiritually, culturally, uh, to be a teenager than it is today and, and what they're going through. Now, let me just show you where we're at so you can be clear. When I was doing student ministry, uh, Quilla may know this, uh, God bless what I did, and I don't know why, because I didn't deserve it, but we were baptizing some teenagers. And uh, we didn't just baptize 10 or 12. We went several years running, baptizing in triple digits. Anybody know what I mean by triple digits? 100 and more a year. Multiple years in a row. We were one of the top five in the Southern Baptist Convention. And what because I was cool and I can go back and tell you what we did, what we didn't do. But I'm telling you this, if I were a student minister today, we would not be baptizing that many. Even if I were doing the same thing, because again, the, it's like the ground has hardened and there, there is more resistance. I think of the parable of the soils where Jesus is preaching about a soil went forth to sow and some of the seed fell on, remember the stony ground and some fell on shallow soil and some of the thorns rose up and choked it and some fell on the, the softer soil. Well, the, the soil was softer when I was doing ministry. And here's what's mind boggling. The average number of teen baptisms in a Georgia Baptist church last year this blows my mind, was one teenager per church. Do you know that? 3,600 churches, about 3,000, about 3,600 baptisms. The median number, which tells you half baptized more and half baptized fewer, the median number of teen baptisms was zero last year. It means half of our 3,600, there's actually 3,580, half of our 3,600 churches did not baptize a teenager last year. Now, men and women, let me ask you, what does that mean for us five and six and seven and eight years now? We're not baptizing any teenagers. But I want to tell you something that you'll appreciate that I'm telling churches that I talk about these generational issues. For any church to grow older, once they grow older, still be here 15 and 30 and 40 years from now, for any church to grow older, it's got to be purposeful about growing younger. That's a fact. Now I'm preaching the choir here. I want to talk to student leaders and children's leaders. But I, I'm having to send that message to all of our churches. You've got to be purposeful about growing younger. And so I fear that a lot of churches are ignoring teens and children. We're seeing that. And then there's another that are not ignoring. They're just oblivious to the changes that have taken place. And they're not in tune with what's going on culturally. And they haven't made any adaptation. And while I would never suggest that you compromise the scripture, we do need to be like missionaries with our culture and understand it because it has changed uh, so drastically. Notice that with kids, it's a little better. The average is three, 
and the median number is one, meaning half baptized more than one, half baptized one or zero kids. So uh, that is quite a challenge right there. Now, uh, while we focus on kids and teens today and why I'm encouraging churches to do this and talking about focusing younger, it's because it's a reality that two-thirds of people will come to know Christ at 13 years of age or younger. How many of you were 13 and under? Raise your hand real high. That would be me. Okay. Then it says, uh, not says, I know this, it's three-fourths at 16 and under. How many of you were under 16 years of age? Keep raising your hand again if you raised it before. Okay. How many of you were 19 years of age and under? Raise your hand. 19 years of age. That will be almost everybody, by the way, when you get there. You can go into your church, say, how many of you came to know Christ at age 19 and under? And most of the hands will go up. What, it hasn't changed, although the culture has changed, and, and yes, the, it's tougher to reach teens. Uh, that don't mean they can't be reached, and I will tell you, the opportunities are greater. Uh, and so, I, again, not being a pessimist about this, fewer students come to know Christ, but when we look at Gen Z, the opportunities are even greater because they make up, make up such a large uh, percentage of the generation that's alive. You'll see in a minute about a fourth of the people living right now in the United States of America are Gen Z, uh, the 10 to 24 year olds. It's like another baby boom. Not, not like it is a baby boom that has taken place. Uh, it has a lot to do with immigration and a lot to do with the birth rates here in the United States of America. But it is very intriguing what is going on. Uh, I'll come back to that in a few moments. Let me tell you where I'm getting this information from in case you're wondering as I go through here. I'm not making stuff up. This comes from several sources. One is a uh, Meet Generation Z by a guy named James Embry White. Okay, so if you want a definitive book on this subject, there's a good place to start. I read another book by Gene Twinge called iGen, the Internet Generation, iGen. Gene Twinge, she's not a Christian author, by the way. She's a sociologist, and it was so good, though. It's just powerful. As a matter of fact, I'm taking my outline, really, from her chapters today, and some of the data, I'm going to break it down. Uh... But still, if you haven't read the whole book, I'm going to give you an overview of that and talking about the good, the bad, and the ugly of all that. And then the book uh, I referenced earlier that I wrote called Why They Stay by myself and Tom Kreitz and our research. So what you're seeing is a blend of things from those books. But there's another resource I want to tell you about I'm not drawing from, but you would be, uh, uh, it would suit you well in what you do to tap into it. My wife and I were watching, uh, right at the very beginning of the summer, Diane Sawyer, her name may sound familiar, from ABC. She did a documentary, two-hour documentary. It was a Friday night. It's kind of low time for people to watch. It was called Screen Time. Screen Time. Did anybody happen to see that? Last week I was in there, a lady said she had seen it. It's really phenomenal. I'll encourage you to see if you can find it on demand or go about Screen Time by Diane Sawyer. two-hour documentary. Great resource for you personally as a student leader, children's leader, but also for you as a parent or a future parent. And it was so convicting to me, though it was not a spiritual message. I want to give you just one little taste of it. She, uh, she, or, or they had a, a mom with an infant, uh, really a toddler, like a two-year-old. They sent them into a room with toys. Said, so, "Once you go in the room with the toys, and sit down, and as soon as you sit down, get out your iPhone and look at it, and start looking at you know social media or something." And do not give any attention to your child for 120 seconds. Okay. So the mom went in and sat down and started just looking at her phone. And it was just absolutely amazing to see the consistency and how those children responded to their mom just being ignored for 120 seconds. And it had such a profound impact on me now having grandchildren. I never am on my phone 
or my tablet when my grandkids are in my presence because they felt they were sick. It, it, the way it was affecting them, just that two minutes emotionally and the neglect. And I remember one little child said, Mama, talk to me with your eyes. Because Mama was, what baby? She wouldn't look at her child. Talk to me with your eyes. Powerful stuff. So anyway, I want to encourage you to check that out. Now, let me show you where we're at as we get into Gen Z. Uh, I don't know a lot about Catholic polity and things, and that's not my background. But this is the, uh, I, I, I don't know if the terminology is correct here or not, so pardon me if you have Catholic background, I miss it. It's the inauguration of the Pope, essentially. Not the inauguration, it's when they, they announced who the Pope is uh, back in 2005. So inauguration is probably not the right word. So I want you to look on there. How many, how many phones can you identify in this picture? Count them up. Best you can. There's one easy to find down here. Yeah, that one stands out. I see one, I think, here. Uh, there's one maybe right over here. Right down here, there's one. Even if, let's say there's 10, you know. You can find two or three real quick. If you dig, you might find seven, eight, nine, ten. You may remember that eight years later, that Pope did something unusual. He actually retired, which was kind of unprecedented in my lifetime. And so they inaugurated a new Pope, right? So watch this. This is eight years later. I'm going to do, do the contrast here again. 2005. 2013. Same room. That is, that is a vivid demonstration of what's happened and why this generation, we call them digital natives. They've never known a world without iPhones, and which is only 11 years old, by the way, an iPhone, uh, and uh, iPads and full internet access, you know, uh, available to them. They said iPad in the front's got a mission too, he's holding it up. But wow, that is just a powerful depiction of what has happened just in the last few years. So let's meet this generation called Generation Z. Well, there are five generations living now, the greatest generation. They're, uh, of course, 70 years of age plus, and they were profoundly affected by World War II. If you want to, I'm not going to dig deep here, but if you want to know the, the, the world events that have shaped them, would be World War II. Then my generation that followed them, the baby boomers, those folks in their 50s and 60s, uh, they were profoundly affected by the landing on the moon. And so they were the you-can-do-it generation and the church growth generation, the goals and achievement and overachievement. They were followed by Generation X. And they had a, a uniquely uh, opposite experience from the landing on the moon. They were at school, and uh, during when I watched the moon landing as a child, it was late at night. The, this event happened during the day. And I'm, I'm, when I say every child, not literally, but most every child in U.S. of A. were watching TV when this happened. Anybody know what happened? Challenger. Challenger exploded and people died in front of their eyes. You're a second grader having to process this. So they got very cynical, a little different experience. It really had an effect on the generation. And they gave birth, <laughs> their cynicism, to millennials. And uh, millennials were profoundly affected by 9-11-2001, the... Uh, falling of the Twin Towers and that attack. So that really affected their view of life. And uh, the, they really uh, experienced uh, in their childhood a lot of fear. And the result of that is as parents, since they grew up with a lot of fear, they are very protective of their own children. And a lot of times they're known as helicopter parents or lawnmower parents where they're trying to plow away from the kids or even bulldozer parents. 
So they, they do parent a different way that the millennials do. Not all bad necessarily, okay, just different. They are much more protective. You're gonna see that going through. And then you give birth to Generation Z, which grew up in a post-911 world, the digital natives, and they have 24-hour news. And that may not sound like much to you because CNN started that a long time ago, but uh, in previous generations, you would read a newspaper, or you would wait catch the news at six o'clock or 11 o'clock or 10 o'clock, whatever. With 24-hour news cycles, the, the problem or challenge being, and I don't say problem, the challenge is this, it's not that kids are watching the news, but you just can't miss it. And especially you get on Twitter, and I remember when Osama bin Laden was, was killed, if I'd been a child, I would have found that out a day or two later. When Osama bin Laden was killed, I remember finding out before it made the news. How was it possible? I knew it happened before it made the news, sitting in Bethlehem, Georgia. Twitter. Found it on Twitter before it was on the news, before the president even got up and announced it. I knew through Twitter that it happened. So, wow, the, the speed of information uh, compared to even many of you growing up were the post or the uh, 30s plus group. And here, here's what they also, uh, global social connections. Uh, one thing I'm trying to tell parents that's different about me growing up is that a limited number of people had access to me. Okay? So my worldview uh, was there were not a lot of things that, you know, a very narrow focus, which probably, you know, shaped me in a positive way. But children today, uh, not only did they have access to more information, but more people have access to children because of the World Wide Web. So they're hearing a lot of conflicting uh, stories and thoughts and philosophies. Mm -hmm. And so it is really can be confusing and challenging. And that's why uh, they're not coming to faith as much as we were because they're, they're dealing with competing ideas where that was not something I dealt with until my college years. That's when I started hearing a lot of competing ideas and being challenged. The good news was then, when I went to college, it was five years after my salvation and I was strongly rooted in my biblical and theological underpinnings. And so while the storms came and the winds blew and the floods rose, I, I was standing on a rock. You know, because of my... And you take a child today and they're not getting that at 18 and 19 to 20. They're experiencing what I experienced at 13, 14, and 15. And if they came to know Christ at age 10 or 11, they're not as rooted, not because they're doing anything wrong, it's just a different experience. And so we're seeing the results of that today uh, with our teenagers and then global social connections, people having access to them. Gen Z makes up 25.9%, so one fourth of our population right now are teenagers and children and young adults. Broadly speaking, age 10 to 24, Understanding that as you read different materials, it may, it, may, it may shift a year or two on either side, but basically you're looking at 10 to 24, generally children, teens, and our youngest adults, okay? Our college age young adults. They would be Generation Z. That percentage is gonna go up as more of our baby boomers and seniors die. It will go up for a while and then it, will, it won't ever get to 30%, probably 27, 28%, and then it will begin to go down again. But folks, they're gonna make a big impact on our culture they already are, by the way, even as teenagers. But uh, they're going to make a big difference in the church. And as I preach, and I'm preaching right now, i got a message called When Generations Collide. And churches always say, come and preach that message. Because we look at 1 Timothy chapter 5, and you see there were generational divisions in 1 Timothy 5. One in the very first church, they were having generational challenges and divisions. And I talk about the changes and challenges that we're experiencing right now. 
are going to be challenging to the church and especially to older adults. And you're probably already seeing that in your church. They're really wrestling with the changes. And I'll just tell you, being someone who's on the hills of senior adult life, the older you get, the more sentimental you get. You get. And it, honestly, it does get harder and harder for me to change as I get older. Uh, I always say I like change as long as I agree with it. You know what I'm talking about? But I agree. I don't agree with a lot of change. But I'm. But for me, and I want to tell you guys one other little thing about personal testimony here. I believe God's put me at this stage of my life with my experience and also with this information because I can say things to senior adults that you can't say. And I'm saying it as a peer rather than somebody talking down to them as a younger adult or rebuking them. So it's really kind of interesting how God has done this, you know, in my life. And so I'm trying to help our, especially our seniors and our boomers, my peers, to understand these issues even more than speaking to you about it. I'm happy to do that, but especially those grandparents out there understand these things. Now, they increasingly, generations Z, increasingly live in multiracial and multi-generational homes. That is good, by the way, because uh, racism, a lot about racism. And I will say some things today that deal with politics, but I'm not being political. I'm just trying to be observational. I want you to hear that as I say these things. A lot about racism today. The reality is that's just not their life. They're not racist in any sense. I mean, they just, they just grown up with multiculturalism. And same thing on and, and multi-generationalism, more and more growing up and almost like back to the future, like back in the 1800s and early 1900s, more and more now living with grandparents, you know, with other generations. The encouraging thing there is in the church, they're more open now to interacting and worshiping with their grandparents than Gen X and millennials. Where, I mean, not individuals, you, you may not be aware of the millennial or Gen X, but I'm talking about as an entire population, they've been more resistant. That's why we had the worship wars 20 and 30 years ago. That's kind of dying down too because uh, this generation, they just want to, they don't mind. And I'll give you an example. My youngest daughter is a Gen Zer. And she's at the older end of that. And she's so different than her sisters who are seven and 10 years older. And uh, she much more uh, attuned to hanging out with mom and dad than my other two were when they were teenagers. And, it just never faced her to do stuff with us coming up. It's just it's just a whole different generation. So uh, 92% are online every day. That doesn't surprise you. One in four online constantly means from the time they wake up to the time they go to bed to after they go to bed. They're connected until somebody tells you to put it down. 26% uh, have a favorable view of socialism. And just to show you, in case you're not familiar, when I was growing up, our, our schools literally taught against it. And uh, as they drift towards communism, which, you know, the Cold War and everything, and built out of socialism, and it's kind of turned on its head today at our universities, it's really promoted, and I think it's drifting down now to our other educational institutions. Again, I'm not making a judgment here. I have a strong opinion about it. I'm just not here to talk about my opinion about it. I'm just letting you see, this is what is happening, and you're probably seeing that now in our politics. Uh, well, you are, aren't you? You know, how there's more and more openness to that. One in four of this generation are have a favorable view. They can think it would be a good thing. All right, now we're going to go through here and we're going to do some discussion. I've been talking a lot, but get ready to talk to me, okay? Because I want to hear from you. And we're going to go through these characteristics and I'm going to say G, B, and U. I'm going to tell you the good, the bad, and the ugly. It's not all bad, okay? So I'm not here to throw off on the teenagers. I'm here to show you some good things that are happening too that we can leverage. Now, the first thing that we'll talk about is the fact that they are not in a hurry. And what I mean by that is they're intellectually advanced, but they're growing up slower. And this is very interesting dichotomy here. 
when I say they're intellectually advanced, at 14 years of age, I'm not saying they're smarter than you were at 14, or that their IQs are higher because IQs have been consistent through the age. IQs, that's a, that's a nurture, excuse me, a nature item there. So their IQs are the same, their uh, intelligence is the same, and yet they're smarter. It's because they know more. Why do they know more? Access. Access. Goes back to the access. Access to information. Because uh, there, there, there's more here than was in my university library at their fingertips. And it goes with them everywhere they go. They have access to information. So a 14-year-old knows more about the world than I knew at 14 years of age. 14-year-old knows more about the opposite sex and about sex than I knew at 14 years of age. Uh, they know more about politics than I knew at 14 years of age. They know, about, they know more news than I knew at 14 years of age. I, would, I didn't have a clue what was going on when I was 14 in politics. They can't avoid it because of the new 24-7 news cycle. So they are more knowledgeable. They know more. But ironically, they're intellectually advanced. Well, I mean that they, they're more knowledgeable than you and I were, yet they're growing up slower than you and I were. I think that has to do a lot with being raised by millennials. Remember, what was the thing that profoundly affected millennials? 9-11. The Twin Towers. So they grew up with a lot of fear. So they are very protective and very safety conscious. Plus you had the culture with seatbelts and helmets and things. They're very safety conscious, which is a good thing, by the way, with their children. They're very protective uh, with them. And so they're growing up slower. And they're staying in the home longer many times. So we're beginning to see that. Uh, than previous generations. I saw a little preview for Dr. Field the other day about a 45-year-old man who still lives in his same bedroom he grew up with it never left it. It's been, and that, that's an, uh, an extreme example of that. But more and more are staying in the home at 25 and 27 and up to into the 30s. As a matter of fact, we saw this with the Affordable Care Act when they uh, instituted that uh, about 10 years ago. They set the limit for family coverage. Do you remember what the limit went to? Not 18. What was it? 26. Why did they do 26? Because more and more 24, 25 year olds are in the home than were two and three decades ago. They're growing up slower. Okay. Now here's the good part. They're less frequently going out without their parents. Go back to my Gen Z daughter. She's, she'll go and she'd be 13 and 14 holding my hand and walk through the mall. My other two girls didn't want to be seen in the mall when I was there. Daddy, drop me off and tell me what time you'll pick me up and I'll meet you at the end of the experience. She'll go out and eat with us, she'll go on vacation with us, and just it's just a whole different dynamic. By the way, she doesn't love me more than my other daughters love me, nor do I love her more. She's just grown up with really a different uh, mentality, different mental model. And so they're less frequently going out without their parents as teenagers, and their parents are more knowledgeable of where they are when they're outside the home. Here's what I'm running into. The parents are very... Uh, in tune about where their children are when they're in, outside the home, but parents aren't monitoring their kids when they're inside the home. That's the challenge that you have uh, working with students. We'll get to that in just a moment. And here's the bad part. They're less likely to have a job as a teenager. But this is interesting. It's not a lack of work ethic. Actually, their work ethic is very strong, we're going to find out. And I say less likely to have a job as a teen compared to previous generations they're less likely to. Okay. And we'll come back to that in a second. Here's the other good part. One in four do not have a driver's license when they graduate high school. Now, I got, Quillen, let's see if you can guess it, Quillen. I got my driver's license, guess when? On your 16th birthday. Oh, you never met me. Oh, you never discussed that with me. But you knew, yeah, on my birthday, it was not a Saturday, Sunday, I remember that week. 
but I literally got my license on my birthday and could not wait to get them. I had to drag my youngest daughter to go get her license. Why? Safety consciousness. We put fear into them. Uh, millennial parents, since I'm not a millennial parent, but again, she's brought up with peers or how parents are millennials and Gen Xers. And again, we had one child a little bit later on. And uh, so one in four did not have a driver's license. Now, why, why do you think they're not as likely to get a job as a teenager? It's not work ethic. So what's going on there? Well, one thing is they don't have a license. You're right. That's, that's a piece of it. What else? Parents are providing. I think it's another factor. I think those are both true, but I think there's something else or a couple more things, actually. What else? Say it again, please. Uh, maybe a little bit of that. I'm not going to say no. That wasn't the main thing I think is in play here. But we're in a good economy. But I'm not going to discount that as a, a possibility. I think there's some bigger things, though. But that, that way into it a little bit. What else? School is harder to me. Yeah. I think you just hit it. I'm not going to say school's not harder. It may be. But I think the second thing you said, though, the extracurriculars have changed since many of us were children. Well, I played baseball, football, basketball. They all had a season of about 14 weeks. You started and you finished and moved on to something else. Today, if you play baseball, what does that look like? It's all year round. Plus, tra plus you put on a travel team. You go on every weekend, not every weekend, literally, but you go on a lot of weekends. And uh, it's, it's a lot, so the extracurriculars are a lot more intense with the expectations. Well, let's think too, though, some of the kids that I've dealt with, they are not willing to work for minimum wage. They think they have this expectation yep. of I should be making more. Yep. And so they're not willing to work the menial jobs that people are willing to hire. Yeah, to your point, it'd be true, millennials and Gen Z, uh, and, and please don't take offense you're a millennial because it's probably wouldn't apply to you. You talk about the whole generation across the United States of America. They do tend to want to kind of jump more towards the top from the outset and not work their way. Where the expectation of me when I was a kid is go sweep floors, you know, go load trucks and work your way through. That was just what you were taught. Uh, when you buy a home, you go, go get an apartment, buy you a little bitty, little bitty home and, and build some equity. But what's happening now is, you know, young adults meet they'll go buy a house like their parents have. Then their parents have been working off 25 years. So it's, it, they're trying to jump ahead a little bit. And I'm not being critical of that. I'm just saying they have, the expectations are a little bit different. So yeah, that's true. So that's probably a factor. All right, now, how about at church? H how's this affecting you? Or what adjustments do we need to make? Uh, how's it affecting you? What do you think? Schedule of events yeah. services. <laughs> yeah, you know, we grew up with, you know, Sunday school and worship and a lot of times discipleship training or youth choir and Sunday evening worship, come back for a Wednesday night Bible study. But uh, you've you got to be thinking, how do we adapt here if our schedule doesn't fit them? You know, so what are some things we need to do? Early morning services don't work for kids that no. I'm involved with. They, they won't get up. No, they don't. And there's, there's a lot of reasons for that. Not all bad. It's just the reality. That's right. I had a lady tell me one time, said, we cannot get teenagers to come on Sunday morning. She said, we have a bunch of them on Wednesday, and we can't get it. Well, he said, and it was amazing, I don't remember the numbers, but it was like 20, 30, 40, but we can't get a, a fourth of them to come on Sunday morning. She said, what do we need to do? And, and I told her something. I said, now, I'm not being condescending, so I just want to illustrate something. I said, what you do. You ready? I said, I said, all the to relax. It's okay. 
Instead of complaining that they're up there on Sunday morning, how about celebrating that they are on Wednesday nights? And pour into them on Wednesday nights. And let God take care of schedules. Don't, don't, don't panic about the schedule. There is a principle of the Lord's Day and the Sabbath, I know that. But we've got to understand the, the culture, the context that we're in. And if, if you can get, uh, by the way, I want to get kids there in Sunday school, your Bible study. I want them in worship. I want them there too. But I'm just telling you, you say, Steve, we're, we're struggling to get there Sunday, but man, we got a crowd on Wednesday night. Bless your heart. Go for it. I'm finding a lot of churches now are doing good jobs. Are, are, they're being more effective, not on Wednesday nights, but Sunday nights, and pulling a lot of students on Sunday, not Sunday morning, not Wednesday night, but Sunday nights. I don't know what's in your community, but you got to figure that out. When, when can we you know, draw students, but also how can we take it to students in terms of their discipleship? Because here's the deal. What if you do have a student coming on Sunday morning, but he's coming once every four weeks? How are you discipling him? Are you leaving it to him showing up on Sunday morning, or are you finding another way? With all the access we have to uh, technology, are you finding ways to pour into them week after week, whether they're there or not? Not to discourage them from being there, but to enhance you know, what is going on on Sunday mornings. Okay. We do mentoring. We have one-on-one and encourage the mentors to get them weekly, at least over phone, or text message or whatever, and encourage them to be studying the Word and Thank you for doing that. I want to tell you this for the while they stay, I can tell you, when you attach an adult in addition to a parent to them very personally like that, they're much more likely to be in churches age 35. It does make a huge difference when you can do that in small groups or one-on-one. It's powerful, powerful when you can do that. So good good work on that. Anything else you need to do with this right here? Usually I have to I'll go slow, then I'll have to do the last three in three minutes. That's how it goes. But, uh, you got to show where they already are, either where they're at, yeah. where they're in games, with school. Mm-hmm. Uh, go to their world. Go to their world. Yeah, that's good. Can't just, it can't, I'm just going to tell you guys, it just cannot any longer be a Sunday morning experience. We just won't reach them. We will not disciple them if it's limited to that experience. Okay, It's got to go beyond that. So it makes it tougher. As a student pastor, I understand that. Now, next one's uh, easy. When I say easy, when you could explain this, I mean, it's just no-brainer. Certainly, the Internet's having an effect, and we talked about the time online is growing. Well, here's the, here's the good, bad, and ugly. The good is they have access to information at their fingertips, which dwarfs that of former generations that had the university libraries. It's not all a bad thing. They have access to information. That can be good, too. The bad is they spend an average of six hours a day online, and 87% are on social media every day. That's not always a good thing, as you know. And we'll get into later, you know, uh, I've got thousands of friends on Facebook. That don't mean they're my friends between me and you. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know what I really got on Facebook? Thousands of acquaintances. You know, I've got some friends, don't get me wrong, but that, 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 that you know. To say someone is your friend and to be genuine about it is different than you actually interact with somebody personally on a regular basis and that you're there for someone. Okay. The ugly is they're reading fewer books. And as an author, I'm greatly offended by that. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> they're reading fewer books. They are three times, uh, they've read three times fewer, let me get this right, three times fewer have read a book unrelated to the schoolwork that a team back in 1976. Now, this is interesting because I graduated high school in 1976. And I think they're reading less than I did, brother. We are in trouble. <laughs> We're in severe trouble because I wasn't reading much when I was that age. Uh, 
So, wow. Now, now let me tell you what. That mean they're not reading. They're not reading books. Now, why does that matter? Mark Twain said that the man who does not read good books, the man who does not read good books has no advantage over the man who could not read. In other words, to not read good books is to be functionally illiterate. And a book has a different effect intellectually on you than reading a, a blog or a Facebook post or an article on the internet. Because with a book, if you're reading two, three, four hundred pages on a subject and you're diving deep and, and you're really parsing it out, it does something different mentally, intellectually, in the brain than just reading an article. So I would say to you, uh, I would encourage you to be disciplined by continuing to read books. And you can read them on your device, don't get me wrong. I read most of my books on Kindle. But, but reading a book where you're not just reading a, a blog, a tweet, or, or a blog that's you know three minutes long, which is our attention span, but diving into something for 100, 200, 300 pages where you're going deep, it really does more for you intellectually. Well, if they're missing that component, uh, that hurts. Uh, that means if they're getting all of their information from the internet, and we know that everything on the internet is true, right? Yes. They're getting a lot of competing ideas, and all, all the ideas even accurate, to say the least. You can really get a lot of joy. We're not saying every book is true for that matter, but still, it is, it is significant. That, that's a challenge there. Anything you can do about that that would help? Let me tell you this real quickly, this little stat, see if there's anything you can do. We've got some children's leaders here. Any other gay educators, but you probably know this. A child learns to read in grades one through three. Okay? That's where you learn to read. The rest of your life, you read in order to learn. So if you miss those first three years, as a matter of fact, if you find a fourth grader who cannot read on the fourth grade level, the chance of them being involved in crime goes up about 70%. Just like that. All of you know the roots of Sunday school, that's how it got started. Not to give you a long lecture here on this, but 1794, uh, Robert Rakes, working in prisons, noting that prisoners tended to be illiterate and determined to take the children in his community and teach them to read. Therefore, he took them to school on their day off. Sunday school. That's how it all got started as a literacy program. Immersed into a Bible study to reach our peers and eventually evolved into an adult discipleship process also. So we're kind of, you know, full circle here uh, with this issue. So this is one way your church can help. Are we helping our local schools with literacy? Now, why does that matter? I'll give you a little while they stay stuff. You ready? Surprise you. Everything we found out about this, uh, 15 big issues that affect the likelihood that your children will be in church as adults. And they all had biblical underpinnings except for one. And although I could make an argument for this one too. We found out that a kid who goes to college and graduates, surprisingly, is more likely to be in church at age 35 than one who does not go to college or goes to college and fails to graduate. Which is kind of counterintuitive, you would think with the way the university system is today. But keep in mind, these are people who grow up going to church. Keep that in mind also. That's very interesting. And I could dissect that. I've got some theories on why that is. And again, it's probably a somewhat North American culture. Uh, and I would acknowledge there, you need not go to college in order to be successful in life, to make a good living. Uh, but I'm just saying we found that out and it was very intriguing. It was a pretty significant issue. All right, so... If I'm helping children learn to read, I'm also preparing them for the possibility of, uh, of college. And, and, and so those things can make a difference. So what might we be doing in our communities to help children learn to read? Is there something we can do? How about those of you who are with students? 
Any implications for you on this point? Especially the ugly part. Yes. I know I've talked with some counselors previously uh, that some schools they might have a mentoring program uh, or meeting mentors, whether it's elementary age or some other age groups, and they're wanting people to come in and help teens and teens. They love to have volunteers. They need the volunteers, and you can make a difference. And that gets you connected with unchurched children also when you're doing that. I'll give you an example of something I did as a student pastor. Uh, I took at a small percentage of our group, and I'm gonna make up numbers here because I, I, I just to kind of give you an illustration, but I, I actually did this. I said, for example, to our students, when a bunch of students on the weekend, I said, I want 10 of you and only 10. It's first come, first serve. I'm gonna take you through a growth process in the next 10 weeks. If you're interested in just knowing about it, no obligation. Next Wednesday, plan to stay over for 30 minutes, and I'll explain it to you. As a student stay over, I explained it to them. I said, there was more, I said, I can only take 10 of you, but if you're in this, this is what's going to happen in the next 10 weeks. And I narrowed down to 10 and 10 only. I only let 10 be a part of the process. And I did a lot of things there in terms of discipleship and expect them to devotions and, and keep them accountable for those things. One thing that I did with those students during that time, which made, uh, I didn't realize then, but I'm so, so, so looking back now. One day we took a trip to a Christian bookstore and had them all purchase a book. And one of their assignments in that 10 weeks was to read a Christian book, a book on theology. Or a book on doctrine. And here's what it matters. They took a deep dive in the theology. Or a deep dive in the doctrine. And they were accountable for it. Now, all your kids won't do that. Well, they did their teens. Their kids submit their teens. All your teens won't do that. But you take that, that top 10%, yeah, they'll dive a little deeper for you. They'll, they'll take on the challenge. And, and so I had them read it. But they were doing devotions every day. And they were doing all these things. And they told me, they said, Steve, we grew more in 10 weeks. Than what I've grown in my whole life, than any camp experience, anything, because that's how I'm doing the things we're supposed to be doing anyway. It made it a little bit exclusive, and other kids were begging to be in the group. I said, okay, we'll take, we'll take seven more next time. That's all we take seven. I had kids in line that want to do this because I made it exclusive, and we really uh, affirmed them and, and started really taking kids to another level. And reading was actually a part of that, although I never knew this would be true down in the future, but I'm thinking today, even you can take your top students, especially, and, and get them to to dive, dive into some, some old theology. One book I had them read, I know one time, was a book by Sheldon called In His Steps, an old classic about, essentially about what would Jesus do? You know, very powerful. All right, let's look at the next one here. Uh, number three, in person no more. Social interaction and people skills are in steep decline. Uh, I'm, I'm struggling with this with my youngest daughter. And when I say struggling, I went to tell her this. And, and, and if you're listening on... Uh, by this type, not that she would ever get it. What I mean by this is, is she's very much more isolated than her sisters were. Okay, uh, maybe a little more introverted, but I think a lot of it's because of the impact of what she's experienced culturally. Now, here's the good part: they party one third as much as Gen X did. And when I say party, I mean bad party, not good party. You know, party's not a bad thing, right? I'm not talking about a birthday party. I'm talking about a party where Bad things are happening, and you shouldn't be there. You know, the alcohol and drugs and so They're one-third as likely to go to a party like that as their parents and grandparents. That's a good thing. That's why we've been trying to get them to stop doing those things for a long time. And now the non-Christian kids aren't going, now if you've been paying attention, you know why? Their parents are so protective now. More and more protective than, uh, and less trusting than previous generations. Gathering with friends daily has been cut in half since the year 2000. 
with the millennials. That's amazing. Gather with friends daily. When I was growing up, I hung out with buds every day. I, I was with guys and the girls every day. Well, I never could imagine going there without being around my, my friends. I wasn't at home in my room. I was out with my friends in the neighborhood, at school, whatever. Half as often are they with friends. Online friendships are more common than in-person friendships. You hear that? They're more common. And sometimes they're uh, substituting online friendships for personal friendships. And as I told you a while ago, it's really a false facade of a friendship. And so... Uh, then you add to that, uh, as you know, what you find on social media is not always true of someone. Because when I was growing up and you came for your school picture, they went snap and what they got was what was in the yearbook. Uh, and now a young lady takes pictures, she goes, all right, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eight, nine, twenty, twenty-one, twenty-two, twenty-three, twenty-four, twenty-five. Okay, now it's coming. Do, do, do. Oh, yeah, look How does that? They're always showing the best of themselves. So the friends are looking at saying, well, you know, Miss Perfect, Mr. Perfect, nothing's ever going on in their life. And the reality is they got to be problems. But sometimes it gives you a sense that your peers aren't going through the same things you saw. It's, it's not a person that's online. All you're seeing is the best of someone. And that causes a lot of confusion. You're going to see some of the, the, the results of that. Here's the ugly part of it. Spending more time alone results in more loneliness. Duh. By the way, the Diane Sawyer uh, screen time found the same, same things when they did their research. More screen time means you're alone more. When you're alone more, you're not as happy. People are less happy when they're isolated. And when you're less happy, guess what? You are more prone to depression. And here's what parents need to understand. There's a direct correlation between the number of hours with screen time and the likelihood of not depression but clinical depression not being severe not having a bad hair day it's about some serious emotional issues and you know what parents are doing they're buying their kid a phone and saying hey you call me when and, and they're taking to the room at night and they're not going to sleep i'll say that in a minute and there's 24 7 access and parents are lying and so Here's the question. What, what, how do we need to respond to that? What do we need to do in the church? What can we do as student pastors, children's leaders? If you have no idea, we're in trouble. We have to have the Lord get together with the youth and make it Well, they have to come inside each other when we have their gatherings. We have to put their cell phones in a bucket when they come in the church. And that way they have to talk to people and have to interact. I like both those of Zach for the recording here. More mm-hmm. gatherings. And I'll say this to you guys. Don't worry about the size. If you can have a lot of people, fine. But if you have four or five students, have fun with four or five students. Get them together. And putting their cell phones away during those gatherings. Is it going to move up? Yeah. Everybody, all these kids have their phones die. Yeah. So, so charge session. Right. Plug it up. Even though whenever we're here, their phones are being charged. They like it. They have phones on their phones in the house. That's good. So, charge station. That's good. Kind of a win-win. Yeah. My family, it's just, you don't come to the, you don't answer your phone at the table. You don't look at your phone at the table. You just, you put your phone away when you're at the table, you know. So, we got parents here, too. You know, a lot of parents are oblivious to this. And it becomes a, a babysitter for them, even for teenagers. 
sometimes. You've got some people that they don't know what a dining room table is anymore. Right. That's a fact. That's true. But I'm just saying you can help, and parents need help and want help with this. And so you need to become, in your church, kind of the expert about uh, media usage by teens and kids and help not lecture parents about it. We're not there to tell them what to do. We're here to say, we're here to educate them, to help them have the best healthy experience in their relationship with their child and for their child when they're teenagers they possibly can. And so one thing you can say without apology is say, I'm not trying to lecture, but the reality is, the more time your child spends in a screen, computer, iPhone, iPad, whatever, the higher the likelihood of isolation, the more likely to be lonely, you can take it down the road, so to speak. Uh, and you're going to see the stats in a moment. It's down not scary what we're dealing with. I don't think anybody intended for it to happen, but it is a reality about the screen time and the way it's affecting teenagers today. Here's the next one. They are insecure because of what we just said. Mental health issues are increasing. That's not a good thing. And by the way, on all 10 of these, th I could not find anything good on this one. So I just made something up. <laughs> That's the only good thing I can figure is you could argue there's increased ministry opportunities. I just don't want these ministry opportunities, but they're there. But if you say anything good, well, there's an opportunity for the unchurched for us to, you know, provide an answer or solution. That's as close as I could come to a good response to them being insecure or having mental health issues. Smartphones also are resulting in decreased sleep time. Now, you're the, you guys here are experts on teen and children. So you tell me in terms of uh, physical development, do teens need more or less sleep than the average adult? More. More, more. especially during uh, uh, puberty, adolescence, they require one to two hours more sleep, and that's why on Saturday, <coughs> if they're sleeping at 10 o'clock, 11, they're probably supposed to to some degree. No, they shouldn't get themselves up when they need to, but they need more rest. What's happening is they are taking their phones to the rooms. They're not sleeping at night, and they're up, and they're seeing who's liking what, and they're interacting. And, and one thing I would say to any parent, I would not dare let my child take a phone into his room after bedtime. And to which somebody might say, well, I mean, what do you do? Well, I just say this, whose phone is it? Who's paying the bill for that phone? And uh, for me, as long as I pay, I get to say, it's not your phone, it's my phone. I'm letting you use it but it's mine. I'll give you one quick example from the why they stay. I had a parent tell me, ever since my son got a car, we can't get him to church. And I said, well, I'm just curious, how did he get the car? She said, what? We bought the Ford. I said, well, ma'am, I said, all my cars go to church on Sunday. <laughs> That's a fact. My cars go to church because they're mine. And if you're, if, if you want, well, if you got my car, it's got to be at church on Sunday. You be sure it's there. Same thing with my daughter. If I gave them a car, I said, yeah, you can have the car, but it's at church on Sunday. And, oh, so what if she didn't want to go to church on Sunday? Well, I'll take my car back. She's got to figure out her own way. And I can tell you the story of one of my daughters. We told you to wrestle one, and we dealt, went through that. And and uh, so she had to make some decisions. And I'll help you. I mean, you know, I'll help you. I'll help you get a job. You know, I'll help you find a place. But I, but there are certain standards that we have. With my daughters, I try to always have uh, high standards with lots of choices. And another story for another day on how I did that, and it served me well. Uh, but smartphones have decreased sleep time. That's a bad thing. The ugly is, here's the numbers. One in nine teens suffer clinical depression. Again, not just in a bad mood. Not had a bad day. Clinical depression that requires uh, mental health treatment uh, from medication to counseling. Uh, that is a large number. And unfortunately, the suicide rate is going up, not down. And you would think in the modern world in which we live, 
that would have things figured out, those type of things would be declining, decreasing. But among Gen Z, unfortunately, it's on the rise. And a lot of it's got to do with uh, social media, internet, World Wide Web, which is all a good thing. It's great to be alive, but anything can be used for good or for evil. You know, and that's what Trump see here. There's good, bad, and ugly on all this, okay? All right, for the sake of time, you know, let me go ahead a little bit. We'll do some more discussion if we have time. I'm not sure you get all this. Irreligious. Religious affiliation is eroding. There's a great book called The Great Evangelical Recession. The Great Evangelical Recession. Doggone, the name of it just slipped me. It'll come to me probably three minutes now. But anyway, uh, and I've quoted it many times, but it, it gets into this issue and talks about the reasons for it. And I, John Dixon, I told you with John Dixon. And I read this book after I did the research for why they stay. And it was very affirming because he found the two primary reasons that we're losing uh, this next generation or, or they're slipping away is fewer are responding to the gospel, but also, as I learned, more are leaving the church than are staying. So openness to the gospel, here's the good news, is still higher among younger people. Now, you remember a while ago I said it's not all bad news. I'm reminding you of the guy who's in Alaska, and they find out that there was a major infestation of wolves, and so they had allowed hunters to go in and kill the wolves and they would get $300 for a wolf skin or wolf hide. And so these two friends went in and they had a very good birthday and were able to kill several wolves. They were camping that night and about three in the morning, one of them woke up and heard a low snarling. And when he looked around, he realized there were about 200 sets of eyes that had them surrounded with those wolves that he and his partner surrounded. You can imagine how scared you would be, but. He was not scared, at least as a matter of fact, he woke up his partner at that point and said, Albert, wake up. We're about to get rich. <laughs> That's a good view, isn't it? So I look at all how, you know, fewer people come to Christ and there are fewer responding, but there's more teenagers out there than they've been in a long time, which tells you, hey, we're about to get rich and don't be at level of the figuratively. There's more opportunities to be sharing the gospel also. So we need to take that consideration. Here's the kicker, one in four, excuse me, one in three have no religious affiliation. You've probably heard the book, The Rise of the Nuns, N-O-N-E-S, not Catholic nuns, but N-O-Nuns. They, they don't believe in anything. When I was coming up, even if a person didn't go to church, they wouldn't admit it. You say, where do you go? We go to the Methodist church. They haven't been in 10 years, but they claim to be a Methodist. They claim something. Now, yes, they don't go anywhere or believe in anything. And one in four are atheists. Now, here's why that's important and troubling. In the United States of America, our population is about 1 in 10 do not believe in God. It's about 11%. And now, if I'm off on that, that's the last stat I looked up. and It may have changed since then. The number for Gen Z is 1 in 4. So the more and the more of them. It goes back to competing ideas. And it's not that their parents are. They're just confused and more and more giving in to just, I just don't, believe, don't think you believe anything. Also, we can talk about undermining Scripture, the Word of God, and all that goes with that, and you know things that happen. Here's the ugly. They tend to see Christians as anti-gay, judgmental, and hypocritical. Wow, I'm really wrestling with that because how is it that we uh, have a spirit of biblical inclusion? When I say biblical, I mean being true to the Scripture, what Scripture teaches about marriage and gender and sexuality. How can we be true to that? without coming across as hypocritical, judgmental, and anti-gay. How do we, by the way, somebody, I need help with that. Can you tell me how to do it? Let's talk about it for a second. How, how are we addressing that? What can we do? What are you struggling with there? Because I'm struggling. 
Uh, I think well, back for all these, I think it comes back to these kids are looking for authenticity. They're not looking for religion. They're looking for really living out what we say we believe. Good. And when it comes to that, I, I want the kids in my church to know that we're against homosexuality, but that we're it's about love and following God's word, not about hating someone and putting someone down. Right. You show that by how you approach those those people that you are Good. against biblically. Can we still welcome them? Can they still be in our church? Yes. Mm -hmm. Can we still speak out against it when they're in the room? Yes. And if we do it in love, many of those people are going to see, hey, this is not about you versus me. This is about following God's will. Good. You about to want to comment on that? And when we talk with our students, make sure that we're conveying to them uh, knowledge of biblical sexuality in general, not just specific gay, uh, gay LGBTQ stuff, uh, but the also the very speaking truth of love. That's good. Example, Ephesians, right? truth and love, yeah. Really just clarifying what we believe as Christians cross the playing field, cross the word about sin, what that addiction to sin looks like, which is where a lot of the issues come from. What we do with it, and, then, and just, hey, there's truth and there's hope in the gospel, we have words, and that we, hey, we do love, uh, but we are not afraid to stand up for the truth. That's good. You know, something I try to do if I, and not yet, but when I get these conversations is, especially if someone's pushing back against me about ability to be loving and have high standards, I always just try to point people to Jesus as a model uh, because even the unbeliever would acknowledge Jesus was very loving. And, well, Jesus was loving but had high standards, and you can do both. And he affirmed marriage between man and a woman, so he also affirmed genderism, man and woman, not man and woman, something else. Uh, so I think you can make an argument. Uh, I'm, I'm even understanding that, that Jesus affirmed those things, and yet even, nobody said Jesus was loving. He said the woman in adultery, uh, very unconditional in his love, but he told her, but go and stop doing that. You know, go and sin no more. So, but we, we've got to be a loving and, and not, and I, I understand this about being judgmental in the way we approach people. Uh, I, I've heard it said too, we're, we tend to be known as Baptists more for what we're against than what we're for. Right. And so we've got to be careful that we're not highlighting things uh, and elevating them to a point that is different than other things. Because I'll tell you what, adultery is wrong too. I, I mean, it's, it's just wrong. You know, and, so we could talk about all the you know sexuality that'd be honorable and what would be dishonorable. And it's nothing personal. I'm just trying to give you the best life in terms of what God the Creator teaches about these things. And if you're wrestling with it, let's let's work through that together as, as friends. And I'll be your friend no matter where you land on this thing when it's said and done, but I want to help you. And here's my main thing with anybody who's a struggler or an unbeliever or a doubter or an antagonist. Here's the bottom line. Jesus said the most important commandment is what? Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. My main thing for you and you and you and anybody there, in fact, I want to help you to love God with all you got because if you will do that, you'll end up in the right place. I mean, as you learn to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Okay. All right, let's see. We've got five more to go and ten minutes to do it. So two minutes to peace. All right, there we go. So let's do these just real quickly. Insulated but not intrinsic. They're very safety conscious but they're not civic-minded. We know why they're safety conscious. We've talked about that. The good is they wear their seatbelts. They drive better than we did. Okay, They're better drivers, honestly. They're less likely to binge drink or fight. 
And the fight part, we can talk pros and cons there because you want men to be men, boys to be boys, but there, there's po positive negatives there. But the drinking, bitch, we don't want bitch drinking. The half as likely to get in a car with someone drinking as a teenager would have in 1991. Half as likely. So that is good stuff. The bad, they say helping others is important, but they're less charitable in their giving, which you might reply with teenagers. I've never been charitable in their giving. Well, here we're not comparing their giving to adults. We're comparing their giving to millennials, to Gen X, to teenagers at the same stage in their life. They're less charitable to where they are to compare to previous generations at the same age. So what does that mean for us 20 years from now in the church in terms of stewardship and missions if they're less charitable? Hopefully that will change. But I'd say to you too as a student leader, children leader, are you helping to teach stewardship uh, to teenagers and to children? The, again, the ugly is they believe in safe spaces and ideas that are not offensive, which this is very troubling in that, and you see it on our college campuses, safe spaces be I should not have to hear an opposing point of view. And they will literally try, in some cases, to shut people down who think differently. That's not biblical or healthy politically, and again, not to get into politics or, or get too far there, but that's, that's kind of a unique uh, characteristic of this generation. It hasn't been true of millennials or beyond. About a <laughs> lightning. <laughs> All right. I saw some of you jump. The guys in the military didn't. Okay. They say it's not the one you hear that hurts you. <laughs> Think about that. Okay. It's the, one, it's the one you don't hear you got to worry about. Okay. All right. Here we go. If you hear it, that's good news. It didn't hit you. All right. Here we go. Income insecurity. They have differing attitudes towards work than their recent predecessors. The good is the declining work ethic is reversing. Uh, and they are more anxious to get into the job market as adults, uh, though not as teenagers. So they do have a good work ethic. Even with the travel ball and stuff, I mean, it is, does require more. It's just not traditional jobs. They are less likely to want to own a business. Well, there's the risk aversion. They don't want to take risks. That will hurt us in the future if that doesn't change economically. And the ugly is money is in and meaning is out. In other words, they are materialistic. That's not new among teenagers, but that continues to be a challenge in today's culture. So nothing new there. All right, number eight. Indefinite views on sexuality. They have contradictory and surprising views on their own sexuality. Here's the good part. Did you know they're having less sex as teens with fewer partners? And Quillen, we went back to the true love weights of, of years gone by. Not that we don't need to do it now, but they're actually, as a generation, having less sex and fewer partners. The thing we've been trying to preach against against for a long time or to help them with. The bad is they're even more likely to embrace living together before marriage than previous generations. Okay? And that's not biblical. The ugly is their access to pornography. That's not a surprise. Uh, you know, back in the day you had to work hard to get access to pornography. Today it's at your fingertips. It's at the fingertips of teenagers. And so what's happening is while they have accessibility to pornography, you would think that would increase their participation in sexual activity, but it's not. This is not an a, uh, advocacy for pornography, by the way. It's just an observation that, you know, why is this happening? Does it have to do with the safety consciousness? Perhaps. Does it have to do with uh, risk aversion? Perhaps. Does it have to do with uh, replacing with self-gratification? Perhaps. Uh, you have to just chew on those things and try to figure out what's going on there. So, uh, that's just a reality, so that's a good thing in terms of future pregnancy rates and things among our teens. Uh, so that's some good news, generally speaking, although 
the pornography is the ugly part of that, certainly. They are inclusive. They are, number nine, they are increasingly tolerant of other lifestyles. Uh, this word tolerant here means accepting of lifestyles. I might have tolerance in that. I'm not going to shut you down, but neither am I going to affirm or endorse or enable you in having an anti-biblical lifestyle. I'm certainly going to teach against it. The good is they're much more racially and intergenerationally inclusive, which we talked about during our introduction. The bad is support for gender fluidity is growing, very accepting of Mike becoming Mary and Mary becoming Mike and just not thinking much about it, which, uh, you know, generations past, we really have different views of that, and I think we can make a biblical argument there. Uh, the ugly is attitudes towards same-sex relationships and marriage totally reversed in the last decade. And again, that's nobody's fault in that generation. They kind of just grown up with a, uh, I'll tell you, the LBGT community, LBGTQ community, I can say now, has really uh, had a, an amazing effect on our culture, and I don't mean it in a good way, but strategically in the last you know, 20 years, it's reversed. So uh, it's affecting the church also. Finally, number 10 is they're independent. They're not beholden to traditional political parties. Now this is very interesting. In 2016, they supported Sanders and Trump. Now what does Sanders and Trump have in common? Yeah. Old. Old? That's one thing. What else? Outsiders. Outsiders. Yeah. Neither one. Sanders is not a Democrat and, and uh, traditionally, and neither was Trump a traditional Republican. They were both outsiders. So what it means is they are independent in their thinking, which is not a bad thing to be independent and to be able to vote you know, conviction. So we can appreciate that, their independence. The bad is they are more tolerant unless it comes to being exposed to ideas they disagree with, which is trouble. Okay. Here's the ugly. 1994, 21% of Democrats and 70% of Republicans had an unfavorable view of the other party. Let me show you how it's changed. Today, 55% of uh, Republicans and 58% of Democrats have a hatred for you if you're not on their side of the aisle, so to speak. That's a difference between having an uh, There's a difference between hating someone and having an unfavorable view and disagreeing. So our politics are more polarized, and we're certainly seeing that today. Now, last thing here before my time is up. Let's see what time it is. I've got three minutes. How should we respond? It, this is a part of the process, you being here today. You've got to become a cultural missionary. And we've got to help your baby boomer buds like me and our Gen X parents and grandparents and even our millennial parents understand that your children are not millennials. They're different. They're even different than you are. And if we were going to South America to engage a tribe that did not know the gospel, we, we, would, we would study and learn their language, their dress, their customs, their likes, their dislikes. And to the degree that we would not compromise the gospel, we might adapt our language and our dress and even adapt to their customs to some degree in order to remove any barriers to them hearing the gospel because to respond to the gospel, you must first hear the gospel. You must hear to understand and respond. So we need to remove those barriers. We need to engage and include younger members in leadership. And this is a younger audience in front of me today. Uh, I'm the oldest person in the room, and uh, most of you are 40s, 30s, and younger. Uh, but I'd say if you're in that 40s group and up, if you happen to be in there, we've got to involve younger people in our leadership. They don't want to be in charge. They would 
be fine with that. But they need to be at the table. And I, I find in many churches, we're just not even bringing them to the table to get their input uh, and their ideas, and we're dismissing them. We've got to prioritize children's ministry, and I know you children's leaders would be excited about that. And as a former student pastor, here's why I say that. My good friend Jason Britt, one of the most dynamic pastors in churches in Georgia, Bethlehem Church in Bethlehem, Georgia, says that children's ministry today is the youth ministry of the 90s. You've got to get to them sooner, in other words. 15, 16, 17 is too late because uh, they're making decisions. They're making lifelong decisions at those ages now. you got to prioritize children's ministry and not to say student ministry is not important. It's always been important. And you got to be purposeful in leader development more than ever. Discipleship is not less important. It is more important than it has ever been. I hope you will do a couple things. I hope this has encouraged you. I hope you will get a copy of Why They Stay. I'm not here to sell things, but uh, again, you can get free stuff on stevepar.net uh, with the videos. But you can, I do have copies if you want to talk to me about that. They're $10. They reach up for $17.95. $10 you buy one for today. And uh, if you don't want to buy one, you can download it on Kindle, uh, audio, whatever. Uh, if you don't have money, I'll give you one. I'm not here to sell things. But people ask me when I go, do you have your books with you? So I always take them with me uh, for that reason. But uh, anyway, I hope that will also pour into you. But also just uh, stevepar.net, learning more about me and my ministry, downloading sermons on this subject or other information. And uh, any way I can help you, you know, in the future, I'd be glad to. Quillen, thank you for hosting today. Thank all of you. Our time's up, so I'm going to dismiss you, but I'll hang around and uh, interact any way you want to. So you are dismissed. Have a blessed day. See you at worship in just uh, about 30 minutes. All right?